0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Romans chapter 7. If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 7, which is, if you're visiting with us in the New Testament Paul's letter to the Roman church that we've been working through for the past year took a little break the end of the year and now we're picking back up last Sunday we picked back up in Romans chapter 7 verses 1 through 6 and as you're finding Romans chapter 7 verses 1 through 6 we're going to be in the second part of that little passage this morning I want to encourage you that if you don't have a Bible I would love for you to use one of the Bibles that you can find in front of you if you don't own a Bible keep that as yours as as your Bible we're going to have the, the scripture up on the screen, but I really think it'd be good for you to, to, to look at it yourself and to follow along. And we're going to read a lot of scripture today, uh, and we're going to settle down here on the second part of Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. As you're finding that, let me mention, uh, just to, to really shepherd us a little bit this morning before we get into God's word, we started this church almost 13 years ago. Can you believe this? April 17th, 2018, we will have been a fellowship. To, we'll been a church together for 13 years, and one of the things that we um, have have just been fierce about. We've grown a lot numerically. We've grown uh, generationally. When we started this church, uh, I, my wife, and I were two of the oldest people in the church. We were in our mid 30s at the time, and and most of the church was younger, and we've grown generationally, praise God, um, and we've grown uh, in ethnic diversity, praise God, and we're continuing to grow along those lines. We're, we're really thankful for that. We have always been people, even though we've grown even theologically, <clears throat> that want to be centered on the gospel, and we don't want to be people that just believe the gospel But we want the gospel to actually inform our lives. Uh, We don't want to just believe in the Christ of the gospel. We want the Christ of the gospel to actually be our our Lord. And it has been our custom, knowing that we live in the Deep South, which has a tattered history racially. It's been my custom, pastorally, to on this weekend that we celebrate uh, civil rights. And we celebrate just the, the goodness of God to our country in the diversity of culture. We celebrate the work of people in the civil rights movement to pray for racial reconciliation, that part of the gospel, part of the outworking of the gospel in our context in this church would be that God would be so kind as to use us as a local church as a kind of beacon, as a kind of city set on a hill that is a place where uh, men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation come and are not only reconciled to a holy God, that's the heart of the gospel, but then the implication of the gospel is that we're reconciled to one another. That's what Ephesians 2 says, that we have been reconciled to God and now we're reconciled to our fellow man. And so it's been my custom throughout the year at various times, but in particular on this weekend to just pray for God's kindness to us as a church and as a nation, that we would see the Christian church be a voice that would call for uh, the reconciling of man to man as we are reconciled to God. So I want to do that this morning. And I and I also want to just to just to make, just to acknowledge that we are living in a time that, at least in my lifetime, has probably been more contentious racially. Than I can remember and I realize that there are a variety of reasons for that and it is not my place to get into that The word that I want to offer now is not in any way political. It's it's really pastoral And I want to acknowledge that there are people in this room who are people of color from minority ethnic groups that are part of this fellowship that uh, Have to overcome obstacles to be here and I just want you to know that as a pastor, I, I'm, I acknowledge that, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful that you're here. I also acknowledge that, that we are living in a climate, politically and culturally, that is very contentious. There was news this week that apparently something very vulgar may or may not have been said. I'm not interested in all of those facts from the president about certain nations, And as Will read from the passage in Luke 10 about the Good Samaritan, my heart is not to get in a political discussion. That's not what this pulpit is for. My heart is to pastor people in this room who may, for a variety of reasons, feel they may be wondering. They may be wondering whether or not they are truly loved here. And so here's here's my response. I think the Bible says in Genesis 1 that all people were made in the image of God. I believe that the Bible says in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is preaching the gospel at Mars Hill in Athens that from one blood God made all the nations of the earth. We are all connected. We are all descended from Adam and Eve. I believe that the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 that there here in the kingdom of God, there is neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female, but there is Christ and we are all one in Christ. And I believe that people from every country are made in the image of God and worthy of our respect and admiration and worthy of the right preaching of the gospel. And maybe the best way to say, to just shepherd us this morning, regardless of where we may be politically, is that in God's kindness, one of the elders of this church, who is from the African nation of Zimbabwe, is preaching right now in Haiti. Praise be to God. So if you, if you have crossed obstacles. If you're a person of color and you've crossed obstacles to be part of this fellowship, (laughs) I I love you. I love you. I am so, so thankful that you are here. Amen. Let's pray for our nation, shall we? Father, there is coming a day when all your redeemed from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather around your throne. And they will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation. They will be from the United States. They'll be from Mexico. They'll be from Canada and Germany and England and Zimbabwe and Haiti and the Dominican Republic and... It will be from Italy and France and Russia and China. It will be from all of these places because you have your people everywhere. Lord, may we be people that love our neighbors. May we be people that are more in love with the coming kingdom than we are with this earthly kingdom that we are a part of. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says in Philippians, and we wait for a savior who is coming. Lord, may, may, may Crosspoint Church be a family where robust political dialogue can happen between people from different sides of the aisle But that it can happen in a way that we know that there's something that knits us together that is far stronger and far more eternal than health care policy and tax policy and immigration policy and all of these temporary things. What knits us together is Christ. And we are more committed to one another and our sovereign king than we are to any temporary affiliation or viewpoint. May that be true of this place. And may my brothers and sisters that are here, that are not part of the ethnic majority in this body, may they feel loved and safe and valued and cherished and honored. And Lord, I pray that you do all these things so that Jesus would be more clear to an onlooking world. Because what the world needs is the hope of the gospel for all who will call upon the name of the Lord. And he needs a church that lives that out so that the gospel we preach is not contradicted by the lives that we live. Lord, make the gap small between what we say and how we live and cause that gap to shrink evermore, evermore, until you come. And may the gospel, may churches like Crosspoint be used as a beacon for the reconciling of man to man. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read. I went for my glasses. They're right here. Um, If you were here last week, there was a little incident where um, at some point during the sermon, I'm not sure which my glasses fell from the pulpit down to the floor. I was unaware of that event when that happened. Apparently it had happened, and you were all aware of it, and I was not. And then shortly after that event happened, I stepped on those glasses. Um, I have a new pair. Um, They're just readers from Walmart, but thank you for all of you who, uh, who, who volunteered to furnish me with new glasses. One brother even brought me a lanyard that I could hook on the back. to. <clears throat> <laughs> Let me read Romans 7, 1 through 6. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher in London in the mid-1900s, you may say, well, Brad, why, we, we covered one through six. Why are we doing it? We, ha, we have some unfinished business in verses four, five, and six. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached eight sermons on verses one through six. He preached three sermons on verse four. He preached over 20 sermons on the whole chapter of Romans seven. So actually, we're going at light speed compared to Martin <laughs> Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law... we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code okay so just to catch us up briefly remember what we said last week that the burden of paul in the letter of romans is to answer the question is how a holy and righteous god who has given a holy and righteous law in the Old Testament, how can that holy and righteous God allow unrighteous people to be in fellowship with himself, knowing that all people everywhere, whether Jew or Gentile, all people are by nature sinful and fallen. We all have inherited the spiritual nature of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all people everywhere from every culture, It has different manifestations, but it's true about every culture. We're all fallen, all of us. And so the argument that Paul is taking up in Romans is how can unrighteous people who can do nothing to make themselves right, they can't obey the law, even the best and strongest of us, like Abraham, can't obey the law fully and perfectly. How then will these people, which is all of us, ever make it into the presence of a holy and righteous God who can't still be holy if he abides with unholiness? And the answer to that question that Paul gives in the letter of Romans is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, fully God who becomes fully man and lives a perfect life obeys the law in everywhere where every other person has failed in obeying God's law and then lays down his perfect life as a sacrifice on the cross to absorb the penalty of the law, to absorb the righteous requirements of the law, which is death, our law breaking, which is death, and then to rise again in victory over sin, death, and the grave so that we would be released from the requirements of the law and ultimately God's holiness and not only does he die taking the penalty that is ours but he actually gives us his righteousness and now because of the gospel because of Jesus now guilty people can be made right they can be justified not by their works but by the faith that God gives them that they now exercise in Jesus and now they and this is spectacular, stunning news they are made right The unrighteous are made. The ungodly, this is Romans 4, 5. The ungodly are made just through Christ. And now we can stand before God, holy, righteous, in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's way better than just one amen from Scotty Hill. Let me tell you that much right now. (laughs) That's the good news of the gospel. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul is saying, okay, but now you've been made right But clearly, because we know this just from living our lives, that we still, even if we're Christians, we still struggle with sin. And that's what Romans chapter six was about. That this grace of the gospel doesn't just allow us to live however we want, but it allows us to be released from the tyranny of sin. And Romans chapter seven is about the law. Okay, now Paul is taking up the objection that he's anticipating What then is a Christian, a New Testament, a New Covenant believers, that's most of us in this room that are trusting in Jesus, that's us if you're trusting in Jesus, what is their relationship with the law? What do we do with this whole Old Testament, these 39 books? that are part of the Old Testament and specifically the law in the Old Testament. And that's the issue at hand in Romans chapter 7. And the answer that we looked at last week is that Paul is saying that the only way that you can be released from the law is to die to it. And he uses this analogy of marriage, where the only way that you can be released from the marriage covenant, again, he's not, this is not an exhaustive teaching on marriage. It's not to Obviously, there are exceptions in the New Testament for reasons of breaking of the covenant. We're not going to get into that again. But Paul is saying that, in a general sense, the only way that a person can be released from their marriage covenant is if their spouse dies. And so Paul is using this analogy, is that we, as people, are bound, we're married, in a sense, to the law, just as people, God's holiness, and his code that he's given all people to live by. And we have, we can't fulfill it, it's like a taskmaster, it's like a a harsh spouse that we can never please And how are we going to get out of this relationship? Through the gospel, through Christ. We die, we with Christ die to the law. Christ dies for us and we are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So we've been released from our marriage to the law and we have been bound or married together with Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be joined with him. That's Paul's answer. And that was Romans chapter four, or chapter seven, verse four. And that's what Lloyd-Jones spent three weeks looking at. But let's pick back up now and read verses four, five, and six again. Let me look at verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, as we just said, so that you may belong to another. So we've died to this old marriage that we had to God's law. And we have been united, married, in this analogy here that Paul is using, to Christ. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may may bear fruit for God. So we are now joined, no longer to the law, but we are joined to Christ. And by the way, just even thinking of what we talked about just a second that we just prayed about, this has profound implications for how we view just other Christians. Because the, the analogy that Paul is using here is that we're bound, we're, we're in a sense married to Christ. But realize that's, that's an analogy. The Bible in the New Testament refers to the church as the bride of Christ. But it's not like I'm individually like, wedded to Jesus. I'm part of a bride, a part of a church. And so I'm, I'm with it in it together with all other Christians in all of the world that would call on Jesus. So this has profound implications for just how we treat people. That are from other cultures, that are from other denominations, that are from other theological perspectives. If you are in Christ, you are more bound to other believers in other parts of the world or other denominations or other people that may view secondary things differently than you than you are even to your own blood relatives who do not know Jesus. That's a I just I and mean, we could we could we could preach on that, and maybe that was one of Martin Lloyd Jones's three sermons. I, I don't know, but let's keep going. Why though do we, what, what, what is the consequence of being joined to Christ, married to Christ in this corporate sense as the bride of Christ? In order that we may bear fruit for God. So to be a Christian means that to some degree we will bear fruit for him. Our assurance, just briefly before we move on, our assurance of our right standing with God comes from the fruit that eventually is born out of our life. This does not mean that obviously a Christian is sinless. We're going to talk about that in a second. But it means that the Christian life, the true genuine Christian life, is marked by a trajectory of consistent obedience over time. Friends, just a little pastoral aside, that's why Here at Crosspoint, we shy away from a kind of altar call mentality. So in virtually every sermon that you'll hear preached here, we will call for people to believe and trust in Jesus. I I will call for sinners and urgently to repent and believe in Jesus. But we're very careful to guard against Having you do something like raise your hand and recite a prayer or come down to an altar. Not that those are inherently bad things to do. But we don't want to give you a kind of assurance just because you did something. What is the Jesus says that, and we see it in other parts of the Bible, that you will know a tree by its fruit. This happens over time. And so although I believe the new birth happens in an instant... If somebody just says, "I believe in Jesus," after they respond to a sermon and they're caught up in a moment, for us just to slap the save tag on them without then coming alongside them and shepherding them into what it means to be a true believer and what this is what your life will look like if your confession is true, is it's really spiritual malpractice, friends. That's why. That's why I cringe. When I see churches and pastors post things sometimes in denominational meetings or on Facebook, we had a meeting the other day and there were 22 people saved. I, okay, I don't want to be a curmudgeon. I don't, I don't want to be the cranky guy. I don't want to be like the angry reform dude. But I'm just saying, there's danger in that, Right? And what it does is it creates a culture of cheap grace and easy believism where people in the deep south, particularly are vulnerable to this, think that they're okay with God just because they raised their hand. Friends, that's not the Christian life. Now, I believe, I mean, friends, I think I came to the Lord through the mechanism of an altar call. My brother and sister-in-law, took me, did I talk about this recently? I think I did. My sister-in-law took me to a a crusade in my hometown, El Centro, California, where Ernie Shavers, who is the former heavyweight champion of the world, boxer, turned evangelist, was preaching the gospel. Now, Ernie Shavers had spent most of his life getting hit in the head by Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. And so his speech wasn't real clear, but it was the first time that I heard the gospel and, the, and God awakened my heart and Ernie Shavers called for a response to the gospel that he was preaching and I came down out of my high school gymnasium and I was the only guy there and Ernie Shavers, who was about six, five, 300 pounds, put his big hand on my head and he led me in a sinner's prayer. And I think at that moment, whether I was truly regenerated or not, that was a powerful moment. I'm not dogging that if that has happened to you. But what I'm saying is, is that the way that we know that we are right with God is not whether we, we signed some pledge card 10 years ago, not even if you're a member of this church, not even if we're baptized. We know that we are Christians if we are bearing fruit over the course of time. And we're taking, as William Arnaud says, the 1800s British theologian, we're taking God's side against sin rather than sin side against God. So if somebody comes to me and they say, Brad, today I trusted in Christ, I don't put them off and say, oh, well, brother, come back. With me. Give me, give me, let's do a fruit inspection in three months. No, that's not. I come, I come alongside that person and say, praise God, and I take that confession as valid. And I say, okay, now, brother, this, or sister, this is what... It's going to look like now, if you're trusting in Christ, if I believe what you're saying is true, now come and let's, let's read our Bible, let's get in fellowship, let's fight sin, let's confess, let's do life together, and this is what your life should look like. So, so come on, so come on. It would, be mal- it would be like spiritual malpractice of me if I just said, great, you're saved. Let me report that to the local association, right? That was more than I wanted to spend on that. Now I know why Lloyd-Jones preached eight sermons on these verses. For while we were living in the flesh, verse 5, this is interesting, and Paul's going to answer the objection here. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Okay, so what does this mean that the law actually stirred up, it aroused, it provoked the sinful passions that were in him or in unbelievers? and that would have caused radars to go off in Jewish years and they say wait a minute the law is good john and read this morning from psalm 19 that the law of the lord endures forever and that it is good and that is true so it's not the law that is doing evil work here it's the sinful passion that exists in all of us as a result of the fall takes advantage of our fallen nature and is provoked by the holiness of God. Think about it this way: um, yeah, Come on, just if you're a kid and you're you know walking and you see not a kid, an adult. Come on, all of us. You see a sign and a lawn that says "Don't walk on the grass." What's in you, right? You just you just you just want to do it, right? That's a kind of picture. That's what that's what the law, it's how the law provokes this in us. And Paul is contrasting here those that are in the flesh with those that are in the spirit. And we're gonna look at the spirit here in just a moment. The law arouses our sinful passions. Verse six, but now. Those are two of the sweetest words. But now, anytime Paul says, but now, it's like the gospel just comes in like a flood. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so Paul is now saying that the law stirred up the sinful passions in us And we disobeyed God. But the Christian is somebody who's been made alive by God. And they are now now bound to another. They now have the Spirit of God living in them. And they are now released from the law. So that they would serve in the new way of the Spirit. So you see the contrast here. See the stark realities that Paul sees the world in and humanity in. Those that are in the flesh... Who bear fruit for death, and those that are in the spirit that bear fruit for God and obey the Spirit. So here's the two questions that we're going to spend the rest of our time on, and we're just going to end on this or to answer two questions here. These I'm going to put it up on the screen. What is the re- Christian's relationship to this Old Testament law? Given that we now serve in the new way of the Spirit, what does that mean? Is do we just do we just take the thirty nine books of the Old Testament? and not read them i mean come on it's late mid-january some of you may be bogged down in your bible reading plans in leviticus (laughs) do we just not read it is what john and bola read from psalm 19 not christian scripture that the law is perfect reviving the soul or does it have some relationship still with us do we read the old testament do we read the law So that's the question, what is the Christian's relationship to the law? And then secondly, what does it mean to serve in the new way of the Spirit? What does that mean practically in our lives? Okay, so first, what is the Christian's relationship to the law? Well, remember that perfect obedience is required from the law. Listen to James chapter 2 and verse 10. We're going to read a lot of scripture here. We'll have it up on the screen. You may just want to jot them down and look at them closer later. James 2, 10, as an example of suffering and patience, uh, where am I? Nope, I'm not in the right place. James 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. (laughs) So isn't isn't that stunning? I mean, come on, we can't just say, well, I'm basically a decent person and I do most of it. No, the law is holy and God is holy and he's perfect, so the What he requires is is perfect. That's what Galatians chapter 3 says too as well. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And so perfect obedience is required of the law. And here's the good news of the gospel, friends, is that Jesus... And I know I repeat this a lot, but, but this is something we need to have hammered into our hearts every week we gather, is that Jesus, because we can't obey, if we, after we read James 2 and Galatians 3, doesn't that produce a little futility in you? Like, how am I going to do that? Well, the gospel answers that question. Jesus fulfills the law for us. That's the good news of the gospel. So what does it mean that we've been released from the law? It means that the law has been fulfilled in Jesus and that we are given his law-abiding righteousness through faith. It's exactly what the Bible says. Look at Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three, verses one through 11. I'll read it quickly. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I love this verse. This is really really, uh, an encouraging verse to preachers that repeat themselves. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So repeating myself is good for you? Apparently you didn't find that as as funny as I did. Okay, verse two, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he's referring to people that say that you still have to uphold this Old Testament law to be made right with God. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks... If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, if anyone thinks that they are right with God through law abiding, I'm, I'm at the top of that list. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And Paul was saying, in a sense, I was upholding all of these things. But the law can never make us righteous. Verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Listen to this, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may may gain Christ and be found in him, verse 9, underlined it, do whatever you do to to make yourself remember verses, and be found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So do you see this? God has not shook the etch sketch and said, oh man, the Old Testament didn't work. The law didn't work. No, the law worked. The law upheld the holiness, displayed the holiness of God, and took any basis for glory away from mankind. And Jesus answers the law by completely obeying the law, dying on the cross to absorb the penalty of the law, and giving faith to the people that he saves so that through the gift of faith, not their own work, but through the gift of faith that he gives them, they then believe in him, put their hope in him, and when they do that, he gives them all of his righteousness and it's credited to them. Now those that believe in Jesus are justified and stand before God as, listen to this, this sounds scandalous, as perfect law keepers. Not because we are righteous, but because Christ is righteous. Now the law, we're released from the requirements of the law because Jesus fulfilled them and we are in him. And now to be a Christian, take this in. This is stunning and spectacular To be a Christian means that you are in Christ and you can never be more loved than you are right now and God is pleased with you and you are righteous. The righteousness of God has been given to you. Okay, now, anything short of that, anything short of that leaves the door open for legalism. Anything short of what I just said leaves the door open for legalism. But if we don't say more and we're about to, we leave the door open for cheap grace. Or the theological term meaning being antinomianism against the law. In other words, we can just kind of live however we want. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that if you preach the gospel... In your preaching of the gospel, if at some point in your ministry, you are not accused of being an antinomian or somebody who's promoting cheap grace, he says, if you don't get close to that edge, he says, I don't know if you're truly preaching the gospel. Because right, like when I was talking about how there's nothing we can do, we're as righteous, so some, some of us kind of more like, you know, legalistic Christians, we're prone to that. We're like, well, what about this guy? What about this guy? He's doing this. I know what he's doing. Yeah, yes! But the moment we add anything on to our right standing with God in and of ourselves, we lose the gospel. That's the glorious good news of the gospel. But we've been released from the law. What does verse 6 say? So that we would serve in the new way of the Spirit. So, what does that mean? And that's our second question we take up for the final few minutes. What does it mean to serve in the new way of the Spirit? Well, first, let's understand just the theological reality of what it means to be part of the new covenant. Even in the middle of the Old Testament, when God was requiring these people before Jesus to uphold the law, even as part of this old covenant, he points forward to the new covenant. Listen, Listen to what he says to his people in Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen to this. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, he's he's, he's using the prophet Jeremiah to speak a word of comfort to a rebellious people who find themselves in all sorts of trouble and captivity because of their law breaking, because of their unholiness. And this is what he says to, to a people who are struggling with sin and obedience to God in the old covenant and he wants them to look up and look forward to the new covenant and this is embedded in this is the shadow of the gospel that is the new testament listen to jeremiah 31 starting in verse 31 of chapter 31 behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and the house of judah not like the covenant i made with their fathers on the day when i took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of egypt my covenant that they broke in other words i rescued them from egypt And right after they got out of Egypt at Mount Sinai, through Moses, God gives the law. That's the old covenant. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And I think here when he's talking about Israel, he's not just talking about ethnic Israel. I think he's foreshadowing and talking about true Israel, spiritual Israel, both Jew and Gentile in the New Testament who will believe in Jesus. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to this. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Listen to what he says in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 36, another Old Testament prophet while his people are under this old covenant law. This is what he says about, he's foreshadowing the gospel. He's foreshadowing this new way of the spirit that Paul has talked about here in verse 6. Listen to Ezekiel 36 verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. Friends, isn't that the message of of Romans, that God is vindicating his holiness by crushing Jesus instead of us so that the unholy could be holy through Christ, who alone is holy. So in other words, God doesn't grade on a curve. God has the strictest of standards, and only Jesus has upheld them, and the only way to be made right with a holy God is through Jesus. His holiness is vindicated, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned. And by the way, doesn't that just make it just the way we just Nah, I'm about to go on a rant. I can't do it. I don't have time. I don't have time. I'm just gonna say, just one little thing. Just just the just the casualness of modern-day evangelicalism, like God is just some, like it's a doobie brother song. Jesus is just all right with me. No, he's a holy God. He's a gracious God, he's a father. Jesus died a brutal death on a cross. The Son of God died to redeem us, to save us, not ultimately from sin, but from the holiness of God. And we just say whatever we want, we do whatever we want, we attend whenever we want, we serve whenever we want. Friends, the church in America does not understand the holiness of God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, I don't understand the holiness of God like I should. I bebop around and smoke and joke. Come on, Lord, convict me of my casual flippancy. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through You I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And how will he do this? I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into their own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I think that's an allusion to the work of the Spirit. And you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Listen to verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Friends, that's what happens when you become a Christian. God takes out your dead heart that could not obey the law, and he gives you a new heart and a new spirit so that you can That's what it means to be a Christian. So that you can bear fruit for God rather than, as verse 4 and 5 says, bear fruit for death. And that happens not because you've heard some moralistic message and can try harder now. That can only happen by the sovereign grace of God who makes a dead person alive. Friends, that's why Lazarus, I believe, the raising of Lazarus in John 11 is a picture of the Christian life. We're so dead, we stink. And what it means to be a Christian is that Jesus, in his sovereign grace, comes to the doorstep of your tomb and he speaks words of life and he says, Lazarus, get up! And when Jesus says, Lazarus, gets up, this happens behind the scenes. The triune God, by the work of his spirit, takes out your dead heart, gives you a new one and puts his spirit in you and now says, I am going to enable you to live in ever increasing holiness and obedience to me and use your life as a kind of aroma to a world that is still dead. Amen. Friends, that's, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Now then, what, what am I to do with the Old Testament? Okay, well, what about all these 613 laws? These laws that say that you cannot wear a shirt with two types of fabric on it. Lawbreakers, all of you. (laughs) 50% polyester and 50% cotton. Some of you probably had bacon for breakfast this morning, too. All sorts of laws. What are we to do with those? Well, this is what the Bible says about this. Listen to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. It says, so then the law, he's speaking of the Old Testament law, was our guardian. It was like our, our chaperone. It was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Listen, the purpose of the Old Testament law, it's not like God's law failed. It's not like God had plan A, the law, and then Jesus' is plan B. No, plan A has always been the gospel. The point of the law was never to save. God's law didn't fail. It succeeded because the purpose of the law was not to save. It was to show us what is right, God's holiness, what is wrong, our sin, and ultimately it was to show us what is needed, which is Jesus. The law was intended, and we're going to see that in a second next week when we get into the next paragraph. The law was intended to produce a failure in us so that we would look away from ourselves and look to God so that God could get all the glory for the saving of his redeemed. And that's what the law has done. Where was I? Verse 24, the law was a guardian until Christ came. It was a chaperone in order that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, but now faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. So that Old Testament law, all of it has been fulfilled. The Old Testament law has no authority to condemn you if you're in Christ. But what was the Old Testament law pointing to? It was pointing to Jesus. That's why Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, let me just paraphrase it, he says when they asked him, teacher, what what does a man do to inherit eternal life, fulfill the law? And Jesus says, well this this is what it means to fulfill all of this Old Testament law. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is how Romans, a couple chapters later, let's go back to Romans chapter 13. Romans, in Romans chapter 13, Paul sums up the Old Testament law and the purpose of the Old Testament law beautifully in Romans 13, verses eight through 10. He says, oh, no, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So think of it this way. Think of the Old Testament law as like the rocket boosters of the gospel. And it launches the good news of the gospel. And But when Christ came, those boosters fall away. And now all that they were pointing to, all that they were a shadow of, which is Christ, and this is how you were to live. And God will no longer write his law on tablets, but he will write it in your heart. Now all of the Old Testament law points towards Jesus. And now the New Testament is filled with commands. We might even call them laws, imperatives about how to live the Christian life. And all of them are the realities of the shadow of all of these things that the Old Testament points to. So when you're bogged down in your Bible reading plan in Leviticus, where it's talking about bodily discharges and two types of fabric and sacrificing of birds, what should you make of that? You should read that and say, praise be to God who at this time in redemptive history is a holy God and is wanting to separate his people from among the nations so that they would live in a way that is distinct. And praise be to God that I can wear a shirt today that's 50 poly and 50 cotton, but I'm gonna look at that Old Testament temporary law and I'm gonna see a God who is serious about causing his people to be distinct from the world so that the way these people live together commends the greatest law, which is love, so that God would use the life of these people, the bride of Christ, to be an aroma to an onlooking world so they will come and see Jesus as well. So we, the law has no bind on us in a condemning, authoritative way, but the law continues to instruct us. And so what our brother read from Psalm 19 this morning is true. The law, in a teaching sense, and appointing us to Christ's sense endures forever. And we end with this. But we still struggle with sin, don't we? That uh, I, I wasn't I strong enough. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't we still struggle with sin? Amen. So here's this, here's this beautiful kind of beautiful process that God has laid out. Everything that I said that we are righteous in Christ to be with him is to be justified. But now we're not just justified to live however we want. That's cheap grace. That's antinomianism. That's why Paul's writing Romans 6 and 7 He's now saying that you now have a new heart. And if you have a new heart, you then, although you as Hebrews 10, let's do, let's look at Hebrews, Hebrews 10, put it up there on the screen. Hebrews 10 verse 14. You know, this is one of my favorite verses. Here's this beautiful seeming paradox of the Christian life. We are perfect, but we're being made perfect. Listen to Hebrews 10 verse 14 for by a single offering. The writer of Hebrews there is referring to Christ's work, his life, death, and resurrection. For by a single offering, he has perfected, past tense. You are justified. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So if you've already been, follow the logic of this verse. If you've already been perfected for all time by Jesus' work on the cross, that's what this verse is saying. Why then do you need to be, sanctified over the course of time because God has arranged salvation to actually work out in our lives in a way that heavenly we are seated with Christ in heavenly places the moment that we trust in Christ but in our reality we are catching up we are becoming listen to this we are becoming who we already are that's the Christian life and so although we are justified righteous can do no more to make God love us anymore. Before him, we now are living in a reality where we are with a new heart that is an infant heart, must grow through the means of grace that God gives us to live in a way that makes us who we already are in Christ. Listen to how some old English Puritans put it. In the 1689, meaning the year of, The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is basically almost exactly the same, except for a few points in baptism, as the Westminster Confession of Faith. Two wonderful doctrinal formulations from the Protestant Reformation. This is what a bunch of English Puritans put together on this idea of sanctification. Let this be an encouragement to you. Let this be an encouragement to you if you're a Christian and you're fighting sin. Let this, let this be fuel for the engine of your heart because you've been made new and now you serve in the new way, the new way of the spirit. Now, now, now you are enabled, young man, to fight lust. Now you are enabled, dear brother or sister, to give your stuff away. Now you are enabled to fulfill what all of the Old Testament law was pointing to, which was love of God and your neighbor above yourself because of the new heart that's in you. But this new heart that's in you needs to grow over time to become who it already is. Listen to what they said about sanctification. I love this. Those who are united to Christ and effectually called and regenerated, it means born again, have a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. We've been talking about that. I hope you understand that by now. Otherwise, i failed miserably. Or you just weren't listening. It's a two-way street. Okay, here we go. They are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same power, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The spirit of God dwells in us. We're going to get into that in Romans 8. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. And the various evil desires that arise from it are more and more weakened and put to death. Do you see the paradox there? That's Hebrews 10, 14. The body of sin is destroyed. But in another sense, we still have to fight it over and over. At the same time, those called and regenerated are more and more enlivened and strengthened in all saving graces so that they practice true holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That means that we have to do life together. It's serious, man. We've got to do life together. Eternity hangs in the balance for some of us, for all of us in this room. We have to live lives that are in accord with the confession that we make. We can't be cheap Christians, friends. And I'm speaking to myself. They're, come on, we, we have to do this together. This is the new way of the Spirit. This sanctification, paragraph 2, extends throughout the whole person, though it is never completed in this life. Friends, we will all limp into glory. None of us stands at the edge of our deathbed like Gaston in Beauty of the Beast acting like we're awesome. We all limp into Into glory. Man, I I don't, I'm, I gotta, this is my only copy. I (laughs) mean, look at this, look at this next sentence. (laughs) Some, some corruption remains in every part. Isn't that true? It's true of my life. (laughs) From this arises a continual and irreconcilable war. The Christian life is war. It's not tiddlywinks. That's why we need the gospel every week because we have gospel amnesia and you don't need seven steps on how to be a better leader. You need the gospel because we're at war, friends. With the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh in this war, paragraph 3, the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time. <laughs> Yet, through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. Praise God. <laughs> so the saints grow in grace perfecting in holiness and the fear of God, they pursue a heavenly life. That sounds like the new way of the Spirit. In gospel obedience to all the commands that Christ as head and king has given them in his word. Amen, amen, and amen. That's all I got. Let's pray. Father, we need this. We need this. We need to see this. We need to see this. Woe be to us if we're people that have good gospel theology, but we have poor life doxology. Woe be to us, God. Woe be to us. You're holy you're so holy, you're so good and true, and your holiness is not against our joy. It's the actual place that true joy exists. It's the only place that true joy exists, and we, God, have been made alive so that we can pursue holiness, which is joy. God, help us see that we are free But it is for freedom's sake that you've set us free, not so that we can gratify our sinful former passions, but so that we can run headlong into joy, which is the new way of the Spirit. And Lord, may we see, all of us in this room, that that is not an individual sport. We need each other. We don't need the fake veneer of religious church culture. We need the raw, gritty, rolled-up sleeve, sin-confessing, authentic life, of church together as the bride of Christ Lord do this work this deeper in us let us love one another let us bear with one another and let us pursue together and fight this war because we know Lord we know that you've guaranteed us that you will bring your people safely home so God may we lean into this thing called life this thing called sanctification with all the fear and trembling and all the strength that the gospel provides. And may we do it for your glory and our joy and the witness of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.